Hey, listeners, and welcome to a very unique and momentous episode of The Goods, a film podcast. This is Dan, and I got Brian with me. Hey, Brian. What have you got planned for us here tonight, Dan? So, as we approached our 100th episode, I I came up with this idea, and you bought in, and I'm glad you did, because I think this is going to be fun. We have talked in the past about some of our favorite movies, and this and that, and in the Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind episode, I talked a little bit about my project of rewatching some of my favorite movies. And I thought, you know what? I've been really meaning to put together a top 100 movie list. And I want to share it with the listeners. I want to share it with you, Brian. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be counting down our 100 favorite movies. Each of us has selected a list of 100 movies that are our 100 favorite ever. We've ranked them. So it's one to 100, or I guess we'll count down 100 down to one. And yeah, that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about them. We're going to list them out. We're going to discuss them. We're going to react a little bit, but mostly we're just going to share. What is it that we love? Yeah. And hopefully our passion comes through. I'm kind of curious how this is going to go over from a listener perspective, but it's an idea that has roots because this is just about the 10th anniversary. I guess it's it's between 9th and 10th of my 100 film favorites blog series, which I ported over to Dan's blog when he invited me. And that's kind of what got us collaborating and being better friends than we were in high school. I mean, we knew each other, but we weren't close then. And then little did we know until we circled back to the topic in our Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind discussion. But we both made top 100 lists in 2009. And in looking back, I realized that I made my list in 2009 because Dan made one, which I didn't even know. I didn't remember that. So it's kind of been a part of our shared creative DNA all along that we have made these top 100 lists. So here we are again, updated at last. That's well said. And I hadn't even thought of it that way in terms of the roots of how we connected. But I did want to talk a little bit about our history of making these lists without getting too gratuitous. So you kind of did one in 09, and then I guess you updated it in 2013. And those have been your, your major attempts at ranking a canon, a Brian's canon, if you will. Is that correct? That's right. So up to this point, I've been pointing people, if anybody's ever curious, sending them over to that 2013 list. So it will be good to have something new. Yeah. And I'll make uh, letterbox lists of, of whatever we read out here. So that we can share those with our friends and, and put them up on the site and everything. Put it in the Discord at thegoodsfilmpodcast.com. So for me, if you go back and listen to our Eternal Sunshine episode, you'll hear that, yeah, 2009 was really the first time I ever made a top 100 list. In 2007, I made a top 50 list. And then in 2014... I made a top 100 everything list, which was where I combined media and 
I didn't do individual films necessarily. I did some franchises and some other things grouped as single entries and occasionally themes or creators grouped as single entries. Like I had all the Pixar's in one entry and I had all the Disney Renaissance movies in one entry here tonight. I'm just doing individual films, just like what you would expect. If I said my top 100 movies where each row is a single movie, Brian, have you committed to that rule as well? Are there fudges on that for you? Not so much. I Well, I have kept pretty close to that rule. So I think there's one or two short films. There might be a mm-hmm. TV special. But each thing gets its own individual entry. There was something I had listed as a tie, and I've designated two slots to that. So number 39 and number 40 are a tie, but they take up two spots. So I'm not cheating. I'm not cramming in 101 things. Gotcha. Okay. So at first I was going to exclude short films. And then I was like, why? Why exclude short films? I don't know. It seems arbitrary. And so I have included short films, Brian. We've talked off pod that as soon as we make these, we're going to immediately think of things we forgot which, when I made my 2013 list, there were immediately, once I finally got to the end, like 12 things I had realized over the course I'd left out. So some of those have made their way in now. So all of mine are feature-length films with three short films included in my list. So uh, you can be on the listen for those. Um, I was going to include miniseries too. I decided not to because there's really a fine line between a miniseries and a TV show. And I could go with the letterboxed only rule if it has a letterboxed entry accounts. But I decided it needed to be a single continuous film to be on my list. Was the miniseries over the garden wall? I had it at number 81 in my first draft. Yes. Yes. (laughs) But I assume you didn't count that for yours, Brian. No, I didn't put it on mine. I consider that a TV show, but it's a fine line. I mean, it's like, you know, 99 minutes long or something. Definitely movie length. Right, but it's broken into episodes, you know. It's like, I don't know, Party Down. What if you crammed that out? It's probably, well, that one's probably pretty too long. I mean, it's borderline, but I decided not to include Over the Garden Wall. And yeah, so I I came up with a list of 100. But Brian, I got to tell you a couple more criteria and processes. But I want to hear yours, Brian. How did you come up with this list? Did you just spit it all out and organize? All right. Well, yeah, I have a couple things I want to cover before we dive in. One is I wanted to gauge how much your list has changed, like percentage wise from the last time you did one, because... Mine has changed some, but not a whole lot. It's still going to have a lot in common with that 2013 list. So if people happen to have stumbled across that before, you're going to see a lot you are familiar with. But we've got some new inclusions. Some things have shifted around, gone up, gone down. And you know what? That 2013 list had a lot in common with the 2009 list. So I'm setting my ways in some regards, but... I'm feeling good with where it's at right now. Some factors that went into play. I think I've given preference to originals over sequels. And things tended to rank highly that had very tight scripts. Like if it felt like every part of the script was needed 
and it was all placed just so, that tended to do well. Some exceptions to that, but that definitely was a point in a film's favor. What about you, Dan? How did your new list compare to past efforts, and what were some things affecting whether things moved up or down? So here's how I came up with my list, and I think this will inform how similar or different it is to my past lists. So um, at the beginning of 2022, I found all of my various ranked lists that I had ever assembled, and I put them into a master list. Every film that appeared in any one of them of about 250 films called in my letterbox list where I assembled them called Dan's pre the goods canon. This is a list of everything that I had ranked as a favorite ever prior to the start of the goods. And I have since then. So some of them I had watched by the start of 2022 out of those 250 ish movies. Um, I've watched about 220 of them since we started the podcast and the ones that I've missed are ones that I felt pretty confident would not be on my top 100. So what I am saying is that every movie on this list I have watched since we started the podcast. So I'm feeling fresh enough to basically speak to how I feel about them now. In fact, the way that I generated this list is I took out of the 650 or so movies that I've watched since we started the podcast, I took the 152 movies that I have given either an exceptionally good on our is it good scale, a seven out of eight, or a tour de good on our eight point scale, which is the eight out of eight. And I took that that list of 152 and I plugged it into something called a ranking engine. So Brian, you might have seen thought exercises like this in the past online, I don't know. But basically, it gives you a series of matchups. So it gives you two things at a time. And in this case, it's movies at a time. And it has you select which one you like more. And it has a whole algorithm for basically, after you've done it X amount of times, it can give you your exact ranking of those things. So I had to do like 650 or 700 different matchups between these 152 films. And then it told me out of those 152 movies, where did they rank from number 152 up to number one? And so I drew a line at 100 and I stuck with what it spat out. And so that's how I came up with this. I let the algorithm choose it for me just based on me doing a whole bunch of little micro comparisons of, of my emotional reactions to, to films relative to each other. And I think the list as it turned out is, is pretty good. I had been kind of drafting a list just in a traditional way of mashing it all together and ranking it myself. And it ended up pretty close to that, but there was a couple that moved up or down based on that. So yeah, that's how I came up with the list. It's, it's cool that I've been able to rewatch all of these and kind of it's for me, this is almost like the end of the beginning. I've like, caught up with the movies that I loved prior to the start of the podcast. And now I'm going to be building upon that. Although it's not just movies I saw in the past, obviously things that I've seen that I had never seen before since we started the podcast, including a handful of podcast picks 
are going to be showing up on this top 100. This is not the end. No, this is not even the beginning of the end. Though it is perhaps the end of the beginning. <laughs> what is that from? That was Winston Churchill. Oh, very good. I went to go see a concert tour of a band that was breaking up, or at least claimed to be breaking up. They have since not broken up. Streetlight Manifesto, one of my favorite bands. And they called their farewell tour the end of the beginning because they were going to go on hiatus or something like that. And then the very last show they did is they went to their hometown in New Jersey and they did a three-night concert where they performed every single one of their songs and they called that three night concert the end of the end of the beginning and me and my brothers and my wife went to that and got t-shirts and posters from it it was easily the best concert i've ever been to so that's what i was thinking of the end of the end of the beginning when you said that brian oh wow did they ever reconvene after that or was that actually the end no they they did reconvene and it was kind of cheesy. They did it like very shortly after that. So <laughs> cheapened it a little bit, but you know, that's all right. I'm glad that they were able to still, I, I saw them one or two more times after that. So it was good. All right. Well, that's exciting. I got one more thing to ask you before we start listing things, which is what sorts of things have you been doing to get hype about this? Mm, that's a great question. Cause you got to get hype, Dan. Yeah. It's going to sound kind of masturbatory, but I was clicking through my reviews and my letterboxed entries and looking at the posters. That was all. I mean, just thinking about the movie as I clicked through them. What about you, Brian? I feel like you have a more fully formed thought on this. Well, I have just been playing music from the various soundtracks, which I mean, a lot of the music that I like to listen to is stuff I've heard in other things anyway movies and tv and video games breaking bad but yeah that's how i got where i'm at right now this this level of frequency just this energy ready to discuss my favorite movies cranking those tunes one of which is needville even though the lorex will not be among the 100 oh bummer you, that's just what you got to start with. You know, you yeah. got to start your playlist with Needville. Good morning. Yeah. Awesome. That's good. I, a couple of these movies have tightly associated songs in my brain. And there was one or two of them I actually paused to listen to the song when I thought of it. Although I don't think I will be talking about those today. Because our, our plan is we're going to do this in two outings tentatively. We'll, we're going to go up through 26 We'll see how we're doing time-wise. Then that would leave 25 to 1 in our next episode. Let's aim for that, Brian. And then I think what we'll do is alternate giving five entries in a row, and then the other can give a very brief reaction. And then we'll, we'll do like a sentence or two on what the movie is, why we picked it, as we announce it. Okay, so like we're saying five, but maybe we say a sentence after each one? Yeah, the other host can then, if they want to, react after the five, basically. Got it. So shall I kick things off? Yeah, go for it. All right, so I'm going to do 100 down through 96. So my first five on my list. At 100, I have Inside Out from 2015. 
This is Pixar's brilliant deconstruction of human emotions as living entities in this preteen girl's brain. Um, I, I think it's pretty fa- flawed. Uh, we've talked about it, but extremely moving. Um, you know, go listen to our top five Pixar list to hear a little more about it, and then even the Monsters, Inc. episode. But that's what I have at 100. At 99, I have A Few Good Men from 1992. Um, it's a little bit too long and structurally kind of lumpy as a courtroom drama, but man, that climactic trial scene between Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson one of my favorite movie scenes ever and just incredible writing by Aaron Sorkin at 98. I have Kiki's delivery service from 1989. This is just the most inspiring and delightful little pastry of a movie about a young witch. She loses her mojo kind of, and then she finds it again. Of course, just really inspiring. Lovely. It's not Ghibli's studio, Ghibli's uh, best movie by a long shot, but it is one of my favorites of theirs to watch. At 97, I have Pinocchio from 1940. Not the terrible Zemeckis remake, for the love of God, but this is one of the most gorgeous pieces of animation ever. Great story, too. Scary and intense and just good story. At number 96, I have Once Upon a Time in the West from 1968. So I'll say Westerns really aren't my jam. This one is pretty much a masterpiece of the genre, though. And its opening scene is one of the greatest period that I've ever seen. It's the shootout on a train tracks. And the rest of the movie is pretty solid, too. But it definitely peaks in that opening scene. So that's 100 through 96 for me, Brian. Strong selections, Dan. When you mentioned A Few Good Men, I remembered one that I forgot to put on my list and a few good men is up there for me not quite top 100 but i really like that one sharp writing by aaron sorkin good performances from tom cruise and jack nicholson and i gotta check out the western one you mentioned did you say once upon a time in the west yeah yeah Mm -hmm. i've never seen that one before so i took a whole class in college on western film and we didn't watch that one so i gotta check it out Nice. Yeah, it's a great one. So, can I go? Yep, go for it. All right, so first five. At number 100, I have Scrooge from 1970. It's one of many Christmas Carol adaptations we've covered here on the podcast. It's the one that prompted our marathon considerations. And it's got some good melancholy tunes by Anthony Newley and Leslie Bracusi, who also gave us Dr. Doolittle and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. At number 99, Fantastic Planet from 1973. This is a surreal animated movie. We talked about it about a month ago when we were covering older animated films. And there's just really nothing like it. It's super strange. And I watched it nine years old, and it has never quite left my brain. Number 98 is The Odyssey, the TV movie on NBC from 1997. It kickstarted a whole series of these literary adaptation miniseries that they would air in the spring over like two nights in two-hour chunks. It's very epic, probably the best adaptation of the story, but it is quite long. 97, Oh Brother Where Art Thou from the Coen Brothers. Good performances from the likes of George Clooney, 
It's kind of a twisted take on also the Odyssey. It takes place in the 30s, and it's got a great soundtrack. Number 96 is 12 Angry Men. Maybe the best movie to ever take place in one room, and almost in real time. That one is from 1957. Great picks. I've been meaning to take a deep dive on the Coens and um, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I I think I saw one time and I just really need to catch up with that and a lot of the Coens because I, I really like their their filmmaking. Um, I mean, everyone I've seen is one that I love. So pretty much I think the Lady Killers is the only one of theirs I've seen that that I would not put uh, very, very highly in a pantheon of sorts. At 95 for me, I have Casino Royale from 2006, which is my favorite James Bond movie. It also came out at exactly the right age for me. I was 17 or 18, which is like perfect for James Bond. But I actually think this one really is great. It's got a good emotional core, awesome parkour action. I love the poker scene. A lot of people say it drags. I think it's perfect. Just a, a really fun movie. And, uh, you know, it made me actually care about James Bond, which is, is something. So 94, I have Knights of Kiberia from 1957. So this is a dramedy by Federico Fellini, who is one of the Italian masters of cinema. And it follows a prostitute named Kiberia as she wanders around Rome, which is one of my favorite cities. She's trying to find love and trying to find her place in the cosmos it's a little bit on the episodic side as far as a film goes. It's it's just kind of a bunch of little vignettes almost. But each of those little episodes is really great. And it's got a final shot that's one for the, the ages. Uh, it's just a masterpiece of capturing complicated, conflicting emotions in uh, these kind of broad images and small gestures that I don't really want to spoil it, but it's a, a great final shot. At 93, I have Halloween from 1978. This one, I wasn't quite sure where to place because I simultaneously appreciate it more, but also kind of resent it somewhat for all of the lesser sequels that it spawned and I subsequently binged. But pretty unquestionably a a terrific and borderline perfect construction for a thriller, just tremendously made by John Carpenter. At 92, I have Parasite something we discussed very early in the show's history from 2019. Um, This is one I definitely need to see again. I suspect I'm weighing this movie down a little bit from the, because I didn't like the very final ending a little bit, but it's just really insightful and is a masterclass of like filmmaking in that, that space of that house. That's really great. And just some tremendous scenes. And at 91, I have up from 2009. This one had fallen down my Pixar rankings, but has recently climbed back up it a little bit with my my most recent rewatch. Um, everybody knows it for its legendary opening, of course, but honestly, everything after that has really strong echoes of the emotional complexity of parenthood and especially like kind of the lost potential of something more blended with that. And I just think whenever Pete Doctor is focusing on that potent theme of parenthood, he really knocks it out of the park. So up is what I have at number 91. All right. 
Well, of those five, I've seen two, Parasite and Up. I'm curious how that trend is going to continue. I'm going to have to see this list later at the very end and just figure out how many I actually got to still watch because it's probably going to be quite a few. You've really been working hard the last two years to, you know, check your boxes. Just watch a bunch of stuff you haven't seen yet and really round out your film horizons. You know, I've, I know you've been working through like a bunch of different lists, people's oeuvres, their filmographies, lists that people have suggested like a thousand and one movies to see before you die. And I commend you for that. A lot of mine is just stuff that I happened to see because it looked interesting on the video store shelf. I mean, that's a good way to find films for sure. And I will say a lot of those are movies I had seen for the first time in the past two years. But I would say the bulk of the stuff is stuff that I had seen prior to it but there are definitely some movies i saw for the first time you're right i've i've really been cranking through them so yeah but you know there's no wrong way to find a movie you love brian right and yeah it's the same with me that especially here towards the bottom i got a lot of new stuff so for people who are familiar with that 2013 list this is going to be probably the more interesting chunk because the the last quarter are set in stone set in my ways but no, there, there is some new stuff towards the top as well. But let's continue on. Here at 95, I have The Prince of Egypt from 1998. I believe it was DreamWorks' debut film. It's an adaptation of the Exodus story. And just really beautifully animated. It's got a great soundtrack. Star-studded cast. Ray Fiennes is great as the evil pharaoh. And, yeah, one of my favorite Moses movies. Number 94 is We're Back, A Dinosaur Story from 1993. Spielberg's other 1993 dinosaur movie. And I like this one mainly because of the villain. Professor Screw Eyes, who has the eccentric circus the story of this movie is just a mess it doesn't make any sense but it prominently features a horror circus and that was very influential number 93 i have eternal sunshine of the spotless mind which dan turned me on to and we covered here on the podcast just really well put together i like the kind of non-linear structure that makes sense as you go and the idea that like high school grads or GED equivalences can get jobs poking around in your brain. I found very funny. 92 is The Abominable Dr. Fibes, starring Vincent Price. It is a horror comedy film where a serial killer commits crimes themed to some list. In this case, he's knocking off people using the Exodus plagues killing them with locusts and sucking their blood and stuff. And my grandfather showed me this when I was little and it has stuck with me. 91 is Silence of the Lambs from 1991. It swept the Oscars and Anthony Hopkins is a scary dude. Nice. Great set of five. I really need to see Prince of Egypt. That's I hadn't seen a couple of those. But Prince of Egypt is the one that I'm kicking myself for never having seen because 
multiple people have spoken up on that one. But yeah. I think Will has talked that one up, right? Yeah, yeah, he has too. And a couple people on other film forums I follow. I, I might have seen it like in fourth grade or something, but I, I need to give it its due. All right, at number 90, I have the 2007 comedy Knocked Up. It's way too long and bloated, and the stoner stuff in there is a little much for me. Um, but this is simultaneously one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. And it has this entire arc of Seth Rogen and Katherine Heigl having a baby that really captures the emotional extremes of that situation, including the giddiness of when the baby finally arrives. Really just uh, a really complete film-going experience and one that stuck with me. At 89, I have The Apartment from 1960, which is one we discussed on The Goods with Nate. The more that I think about this movie and like remember things about it, the more I love it. I'm definitely going to rewatch it in the near future to determine if it actually deserves this spot up here. It's darkly funny, well acted, really just perfectly filmed by Billy Wilder. And I really love the the lead performances and the, the cadence of the dialogue and everything. So I, I'm going to give this one another go and see if it actually deserves this spot. But this is I'm, I'm feeling really high on it right now. And and this is where I have it at, at 89, 88 teen beach movie from 2013. All right. This is probably just indulgent, but I did put this movie in my top 100. That amazing soundtrack, the choreography, the summer vibes, homage to the, the beach party movies. And it's got some surprisingly thoughtful layers to it. You know, it's still a decom Disney channel, original movie, but it, it works for me, and it's it's in my pantheon, as you can see, Brian. At 87, I have Boogie Nights from 1997. So when I think about this movie, I kind of waffle back and forth between feeling like it's a little bit too generous with its huge runtime. It's like three hours. And also just really generous towards its characters, like a lot of wish fulfillment stuff in there. But also just so many details about it. And this is liable to either go up or drop off the list after I rewatch it and maybe settle in on my opinion on it a little bit more. Not sure if it would have made it prior to listening to the rewatchables episodes on it recently, Brian, but that definitely helped it. It probably still would have made it, but maybe not quite up at 87, maybe a few slots lower at 86. I have Hercules from 1997. There's something about this movie that makes it feel a little bit like a minor Disney work, I guess. There's just something like a little bit lighter compared to some of the other Disney Renaissance works, but it makes up for it in that it's just so watchable. I adore so much about it. Very funny, hilarious, great soundtrack. And then that's Phil's boy at the end. It's a top 10, maybe top five Disney moment for me. All right. So Brian, I have, that's, that's my 90 through 86. Nice. Yeah. I've seen more of those five for sure and talking disney movies at least the animated corpus they've produced i feel like they're going to be underrepresented in terms of movies that i watch a lot because i've watched so many of those so many times and generally enjoyed them uh, a few will be popping up and he threw boogie nights in there so that's one i steered you toward Glad you checked it out and appreciated it. All right. So for my number 90, I have Jumanji, the original from 1995. 
This is probably fueled by nostalgia. I was just five years old when this came out. We rented it from Blockbuster. I think it came with like a box of popcorn and Werther's Originals or something. But it's just a really cool idea having a board game that comes to life and haunts your town with wildlife and things just get more dangerous and deadly until you are forced to finish the game. Number 89, I have Napoleon Dynamite from 2004. This was my quintessential high school experience movie. Just a dork doing what he does. Like in the opening, he reels an action figure behind the school bus out the window on a piece of fishing line. It's just a bunch of random episodic stuff, but it appealed to me at the time. So it's here. Number 88 is Hot Fuzz from Edgar Wright in 2007. It's part of his Three Flavors Cornetto trilogy. They're all very well written and have more to them than what you might suspect at the surface. Number 87, The Fall from 2006. This comes from the mononomic director. What do you say when it's just they don't have a last name? I'm not sure, but this is from Tarsum, who was like, I think he's Indian. You might have to fact check me on that, but he was like a commercial or a music video director, and he traveled all around the world for that. And so he kind of filmed this movie over multiple years, just stopping in a whole bunch of different countries. So it almost seems like impossibly beautiful because he just captured all the most beautiful places all over the world. And it's like every frame of the movie could be a calendar page or like a default desktop number 86 the rocketeer from 1991 this combines a lot of genre elements i like it's a dude in a jetpack fighting nazis in like the 30s basically it's like indiana jones combined with back to the future because he's got a mad scientist best friend nice yeah, I've seen Tarsum credited as Tarsum Singh, S-I-N-G-H also. But yeah, uh, I haven't seen that that one, and I've always been really intrigued by it, and you've had good things to say about it in the past. All right, so on to my 80, 85. I have Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, the second Indiana Jones movie. That's from 1984. Um, when I revisited this one, I found it like ridiculously compelling, like even better than I remembered. It's like an Indiana Jones fever dream with lots of just dark and wild stuff that happens in it. And I love how much of a left turn it is in tone from Raiders. And I actually have it as my second favorite indie movie. That's right. uh, Last Crusade did not make the cut this time, Brian. It's okay, Dan. Different strokes for different folks. At 84, I have Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse from 2018. So I really like the the filmmakers, Lord and Miller, who uh, have this kind of brand of hyperactive postmodern comedy. And you might know him from another movie I'm going to list here in a minute, and I suspect at least one that Brian's going to list. They also did the 21 Jump Street movies, 22 Jump Street. But um, Into the Spider-Verse takes that brand of comedy and fits it into a piece of astonishing animation and superhero adventure it's on the hair of being too manic with too many ideas but it's just so damn fun and watchable and really does something special with 
the art of animation. At 83, I have a short film, How the Grinch Stole Christmas from 1966. This is Chuck Jones. He's, of course, one of the all-time great American animators. And his animation is amazing and colorful here. Lots of bright colors. And I just love the zesty comedy and the kind of fun set pieces of the Grinch doing all his Grinchy things. And I just love that it's got a big warm heart at the end. And I definitely contend that You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch is one of the great songs ever made for film. At 82, I have Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban from 2004, which is my favorite Harry Potter movie. And the one of the series that feels the most like a capital F film, probably because it was made by the best filmmaker out of any of the bunch who ever made a Potter film, which is Alfonso Cuaron, I think is how you pronounce it. I don't actually know. Gavin will get me on that one, probably. Brian, I know you're a little bit less wild about the predestination time travel shenanigans, but for me, I've always loved this story and love that aspect of it. I think it makes for an amazing final act with tons of narrative and emotional payoff. At 81, I have The Spectacular Now from 2013, which is one of the great teen dramas of our life, Brian. Um, Two great performances at the core of it. Miles Teller, in particular, shining here. And it just kind of shows him as this really unique character who's kind of the spiraling alcoholic teen who also has this really warm heart. And I think it's just a great, great story with with great character development that hits all of its notes in memorable and uh, loving ways. So that's what I have at 85 to 81, Brian. Cool. I haven't seen Spectacular now. I might have to check that one out. And I didn't even know that Spider-Verse was Lord and Miller. So I got to see that now. Yeah, I have not seen that one either. So, But I think its success directly led to them recruiting all the other live-action Spider-Guys to appear in No Way Home. I think it's all part and parcel. Yeah. Like, I think that has led to the, the several multiverse movies that came after. Yeah, I think there's something there. The It's it's hot reception on that. For me, 85 is 7 from 1995. It's another themed serial killer movie by David Fincher. And it's got, like, very cool, gruesome production design a lot of gnarly ideas things only half shown sometimes to you know you create the horror in your own imagination number 84 is parasite as we go you're going to see more and more overlap i think from 2019 this was a bong joon ho film we covered i think in episode four or something of the podcast and yeah very well executed Lots of tension. Number 83 is Hook from 1991. One of Steven Spielberg's undersung films. But I enjoy it. The central conceit is what if Peter Pan grew up? It's got Robin Williams in the starring role. And I honestly think this is one of John Williams' best scores. It's up there with Star Wars and Indiana Jones and Jurassic Park. Like, put on Flight to Neverland if you haven't heard it. Then, 
At number 82, I have Holes from 2003, the adaptation of the Lewis Sacker book. Three non-linear timelines converge as the narrative unfolds. So it's quite complex for a children's book and a children's movie, but satisfying. And at number 81, I have M by Fritz Long, 1931. Dawn of the Silent Era. It's got Peter Lorre as a creepy child killer who's being hunted both by the law enforcement in the city and the criminal underground because with more cops on the case, that cramps their style too. So it's like two unfolding legal procedurals. Only one is the underground. So those are my picks. Yeah, M is definitely one I'm going to catch up with. It's on the 1001 Films list that I'm slowly going through. I think you called it the dawn of the silent era, but wasn't 31 when the silent era was winding down? I meant dawn of the sound era. So is it a sound film or a silent film? It is sound. Okay, gotcha. Yes, so 1927 jazz singer, I do know that. And it took a little while for sound to take hold. I did mean dawn of the sound era, so thank you for catching that, Dan. Gotcha. All right, at number 80, I have Before Sunrise from 1995, which is one of Richard Linklater's defining works, um, one of my favorite directors. Amazing chemistry between Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. Uh, the premise is we follow them on a night together without too much structure, just they're kind of talking about whatever's on their mind. But it's got really palpable romantic chemistry, like one of the great film couples that I root for. And the first in a trilogy. Um, at, at 79, I have The Lion King from 1994. So I've been in some long debate threads online about this one. Um, it, based on what I've seen, it seems to have fallen a little bit out of favor, at least among some cinephiles, which is surprising to me because it definitely is not for me. I still think it's one of Disney's best ever. Brilliant animation. Love the colors. Incredible music. Huge production values. Just the works, you know, I said Hercules feels kind of minor. Lion King doesn't feel minor. It feels major. It feels huge. Um, I do think Simba's a little bit of a dull protagonist, and some of the narrative mechanics in the third act are debatable. It's like, I don't know, we don't have to dig into it too much here, but I think there are things that you can either call plot holes or just the nature of the type of story it's trying to tell. But I love The Lion King. That's 79 for me. 78, I have Drinking Buddies, which is a movie from 2013. And this is probably my all-time favorite Mumblecore film. It's by Joe Swanberg, who we talked about in Happy Christmas. It's got an amazing, just blistering cast chemistry between the four leads. Um, Jake Johnson and Olivia Wilde are kind of the two main leads. And really great treatment of casual alcoholism in the craft beer scene, which really struck a chord with me because that's something I've thought a lot about. And it's just got that signature bittersweet sort of floating feeling uh, that Mumblecore has. And to me, kind of perfects that that feeling. At 77, I have The Wizard of Oz from 1939. I don't think this needs any introduction, but I will say I found that it's a little more bizarre and scary than I recalled when I caught up with it recently. And of course, those colors, man, they'll just make your heart melt. Love the Technicolor. And at 76, I have, hey, the Coen Brothers. 
The Big Lebowski from 1998. Great blend of a stoner comedy and a hard-boiled detective mystery where every scene is just like its own little mini masterpiece in micro. The script is insanely good on this one. The story doesn't really go anywhere, you know, which I think may have been why it flopped when it came out, but I totally get why it's got a huge cult that's grown around it. I think it's awesome. So that's what I have at 76, Brian. I like it. As I said, we're going to see some overlap as we go forward. Certain things. I mean, I can tell our Dan movies, like probably the Joe Swanberg thing. But, you know, I'm very familiar with The Lion King, several of those others. And I guess I should have talked about it in the last batch, but... No Harry Potter movies on my list. I'm definitely a big fan of the books, and I thought they did a pretty good job with the film series, but didn't quite crack my roster. At number 80, I have Do the Right Thing from Spike Lee in 1989. I think it should have won Best Picture that year. I watched it for a class on the films of Spike Lee, and it was the one that left me saying, wow, at the end. It takes place over a single day, the hottest day of the year, and it's almost expressionistic. All the walls are painted red, and things just build to a violent head as the day proceeds. Very tense. Number 79. Very different tone with Elmo Saves Christmas. (laughs) The PBS television film from Christmas of 1996. This is a pretty creative film. I like how dark it dares to get because Elmo wishes for it to be Christmas every day and society collapses. Just Western civilization grinds to a halt because nobody can work on Christmas, apparently. Which, of course, is not really the case, but is a good, funny way to depict it. And I just like... The adults grimly saying, it's Christmas forever. (laughs) Number 78, I have Ernest Saves Christmas. Thought I had to put these two together. That's a 1988 film, and it has Ernest P. Worrell helping Santa Claus pass on the mantle to a new person. Because it's one of several works in which Somebody becomes Santa for a while, and then you got to find a replacement. Number 77 is Ken Burns' The Civil War. I guess this is a miniseries. I said I didn't have any, but I do. And this one is a whopper, because it's about 10 hours long. But, man, it was a trendsetter. They still call panning and scanning over photographs the Ken Burns effect, and it's because of this special. And at number 76, I have Atlantis, The Lost Empire, one of the lesser-known Disney animated features, but it's got a cool diesel-punk aesthetic, lots of mechanical sea monsters and things, Michael J. Fox stars, and it's a better follow-up to the Indiana Jones trilogy than the fourth Indiana Jones film. At the very least, so. I get that one and Treasure Planet mixed up. I think I've seen Treasure Planet fairly recently. I think before we started the podcast, but not long before. But I don't know if I've ever seen Atlantis. Um, And I definitely want to talk Elmo Saves Christmas at some point. 
I watched it with my daughters one time and I got, I, I want to get like a, I want to do a full debrief of it with you at some point, Brian. So at number 75, I have brick from 2006, which is something we talked about on the pod. This is another one I'm desperate to revisit to see if my fondness stands up to that revisit. But this one really blew me away when we talked about it. It's this great film noir that has this really unique dialogue argot with it. And it's just got a dark streak to it. Also kind of like a, not a teen comedy, but a teen drama at the core of the noir stars, Joseph Gordon Levitt in his breakout role. Love it. At 74, I have the burbs from 1989, which is a hilarious and pitch perfect satire by Joe Dante starring Tom Hanks. It's basically a sitcom shot as a horror comedy. Just lots of twists and turns in it. I think I might pick this one for the pod sometime, Brian. I think we'd get a kick out of this. At 73, I have another pod pick, though, and that is Everybody Wants Some. That was our third episode ever. It's from 2016, another Richard Linklater. And this is one of his hangout comedies. It's just got a zillion scenes that I want to hop into and hang out there. And the characters grow more distinct every time you watch it. I've seen it four times now. I love the soundtrack. And... Yeah, also some fondness because it was so early in our podcast history, Brian. 72, I have Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs from 2009. To me, this is like the Ur Phil Lord and Chris Miller work. It's like where they nailed their themes and their style. And it's still my favorite by them, I think. It's a hilarious, almost grotesque at times story. It's got like 50 or so gags in it that are just so funny that like I can't breathe. I'm laughing so hard when I watch them. And it, the script is just so polished. Great, amazing payoffs on so many different little pieces of story setup. And I just love that one. At 71, I have Die Hard from 1988. This is a perfect action movie and maybe like my favorite action movie ever, or at least pure action movie. Um, it sunk just a hair in my all-time rankings because it's got heavy emphasis on a subplot where the dad from Family Matters plays a cop who admits to police brutality and killing an innocent person. And we're like supposed to feel sympathy for him because he got kicked off the force for doing this. And it kind of left a sour taste in my mouth, especially post-2020. So that's like a, a ass wart on this otherwise of an all-timer of a movie, but still one I love. And so that's my 75 from to 71, Brian. It's me, asswort all-timer. <laughs> uh, asswort is my phrase for uh, something in a movie that I otherwise love that kind of ruins the experience. I guess the way a wart ruins a good ass or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we, we should title the episode that. <laughs> yeah, everybody wants some is not going to be coming up on my list. When I watch a Richard Linklater film, I usually want something more to be happening. Nah, dude. Hang on, vibes. There's a lot of lingering. But you have added to my appreciation for Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. I read your post in your Top 100 Everything about that and revisited it. And yeah, it's pretty good. I do like Lord and Miller. And I got to check out the burbs. At... Number 75, I have The Road to El Dorado. I lumped it here with Atlantis because it's the DreamWorks movie where 
its characters exploring kind of a cryptographic place, a mysterious lost land. And I think it's the better film. It's funny, good songs by Elton John, and also cool animation. At number 74, I have The Sixth Sense from 1999, M. Night Shyamalan's directorial debut. And still maybe his best. I think there are a lot of people who would say that's the case. Strong performances from Bruce Willis and Haley Joel Osment. It's creepy. It's sad. I think it should be on more people's best movies lists. At number 73, Beauty and the Beast... Here standing in for a few Disney Renaissance choices. It's just beautifully animated, great music, really compelling lyrics from Howard Ashman. He rhymed specimen with yes, I'm in. Gaston is especially good at expectorating. He eats a shit ton of eggs, too. <laughs> unhealthy cholesterol intake. I wonder how many YouTubers have done the guest on egg challenge. I don't want to be smelling their bathroom 12 hours later. At number 72, Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island from 1998. A direct-to-video film. I remember my folks picking this one up for me when it came out. It kicked off a yearly run of direct-to-video Scooby movies, which continues to this day. And it's just really good. It's uh, set in New Orleans and inspired me to make a creepy New Orleans pilgrimage with co-host Dan Stalkup in 2016. And at number 71, I have Inside Out, the 2015 Pixar film. This is my favorite recent Pixar. I mean, 2015 is already seven years ago at this point, but I really dig the world of this film. It almost seems like a wonderful world of Disney installment from like the 1960s. Just abstract concepts rendered in vibrant colors. I told Brian over the weekend, I went to a children's museum with my two daughters and my wife, and we went to their special exhibit that was inside out themed. It had a giant bing bong and it had this thing where you could write memories on pieces of paper and it would light up balls, just like the memories in the inside out. And it was really nifty. There was a, a pretty good production value on it and it was like all branded and stuff. So Disney must've had a hand in it and it was pretty great. At number 70, I have The Usual Suspects from 1996. It's kind of hard to talk about this one and why I love it without flat out spoiling it. So I'll just say that I find long stretches of it aggressively mediocre in the moment and fascinating metafictional thought exercises in retrospect. And you should go watch it if you haven't seen it before. At 69, I have Spirited Away from 2001 which is one of Studio Ghibli's masterpieces of animation. One where I admire it slightly more than I love it, although I do love and admire it quite a bit. So I guess it's kind of a wash in that regard. It's just this terrifically dreamy story of a girl who enters the spirit world. And in some ways, it's a metaphor about finding your identity as you become a young adult. But it's also just kind of about nothing except 
battling weird spirit monsters in a bathhouse. So um, love Spirited Away. At 68, I have Little Miss Sunshine from 2006, which is an incredible comedy um, that was also like really formative to me. It was one of my first forays into indie films and art films. I guess you can call it an art film. I don't know. Um, I guess I just mean films that you would watch at Cinema Arts Theater rather than at Regal. But I found this one really holds up. Amazing cast. And so many of these lines are just seared into my brain because I watched this movie so much when I was 18 and 19 and 20. Go hug mom is a line I think about a lot when I see somebody upset. It's a sign that Paul Dano holds up at one point. At 67, I have Spider-Man from 2002. One of the best superhero movies, period. It laid out the comic book movie template and tone that's still being followed today. And it, I don't think it's been topped as an origin story, Brian. Um, special shout out to Willem Dafoe in this one, who might be the best comic book movie villain ever. Uh, you know, up there with Heath Ledger. I think they're one and two or one A and one B. I'm going to butt in and just appreciate the weird way you pronounce Spider-Man. It's like that Andrew Garfield clip where he says, just one guy, just one Spider-Man. <laughs> the way I just saw it written out as Spider-Man. Like, it always strikes me it has the hyphen, at least in the Raimi ones. I don't know if they do that with the new MCU ones, but with the Raimi ones, it's the dash in the middle. So I always read it with that cadence in my head. Uh, but at number 66, I have the most recent movie on this list, which is Shithouse from 2020. If you count this one as Mumblecore, I guess it tops Drinking Buddies. Um, it's kind of post-Mumblecore, similar style inspired by Mumblecore. But it's the story of this magical night wandering campus between two college kids, directed and starring Cooper Rafe, who's this young uh, filmmaker who I really like. And then we follow the kind of brutal romantic hangover afterwards. Um, and I also like that it's like one of the only movies I've ever seen that really captured how I felt about college at the start of it. And honestly, I would probably have this even higher because it really struck a chord with me. But it's got a really dumb last five minutes that bring it down some. But yeah, that's my 70 to 66, Brian. I like it. I'm maybe kicking myself a little bit for leaving the Spider-Man's off my list. Um, Spider-Man 2 is something that was up pretty high on my 2009 list, and then I dropped it from my 2013 list, and I'm not really sure why. I, I think I need to re-watch it before I officially give it a slot, but definitely I enjoy the first two Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. And Usual Suspects, definitely a good one too. I watched that after your recommendation. And yeah, I won't spoil, but... It's got a great ending. At number 70, I have Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. It's my third ranked indie film. I mean, it's got a lot of cool, memorable scenes. Eating monkey brains, being in the pit full of bugs, the minecart chase, all sorts of things. Really memorable adventure film. At number 69, I have The Cabin in the Woods from 2012. We talked about it just recently. Interesting, postmodern, you said, take on why we love horror movies. And it just ends with a cataclysmic monster mash for the ages. 
Number 68, I have Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Caring and Love the Bomb. The quintessential Cold War film, all about mutually assured destruction. I know this is after the Cuban Missile Crisis, because this was 1964, but I feel like it was really this movie that showed the world the insane place that society had gotten to and brought people back from the brink. Maybe that was the Cuban Missile Crisis, but I, I think this movie played its part. <laughs> Number 67, Chicago from 2002. I've brought it for discussion here on the podcast. Really dig the editing, the way that the story kind of exists in two worlds that are intercut, and just an embarrassment of riches in the cast. And at number 66, I have Little Shop of Horrors, not The Little Shop of Horrors. This is the musical adaptation from 1986, one of Ashman and Mencken's early team-ups that put them on the map and had Disney knocking on their door. It's a grim but funny, bloody musical. Very nice. I like we had some good picks in there. And in fact, I'm going to pull a connection because my number 65 is Monsters, Inc., which was the one we paired with Cabin in the Woods. So only a couple away from your parent, your ranking of Cabin in the Woods. This is one that's grown with me as I've gotten older and become a parent. You can go listen to our recent episode to hear a few more thoughts on Monsters, Inc. At 64, I have a movie that I have didn't know exactly where to slide up and down. But this is where the algorithm told me it should be, and that is The Prestige from 2006, which is an incredible puzzle story of competing magicians. It's also secretly kind of Christopher Nolan's reflection on the personal cost of creating great things that entertain and engage and endure. Um, at 63, I have Lost in Translation from 2003. This is just a lovely opus by... Sophia Coppola, who is the daughter, I think, of Francis Ford Coppola, one of the great American filmmakers. And this is about finding an unexpected connection in a city where you feel totally alienated. I think it has my favorite Bill Murray performance ever, which is saying something. Um, he plays a comedian past his glory years, so basically himself. And this movie just has like a naturalism and a lyricism to it that I, I really love. At 62, I have Monty Python and the Holy Grail, 1975. I think the most quotable comedy ever. I somehow still find major sections of it very funny, despite having the entire script just chiseled into my brain from constant rewatch as a preteen and teen. Like, I don't know if I'll ever laugh at a knight saying knee ever again, but honestly, that, that doesn't overall diminish the brilliance of Holy Grail. And at 61, I have One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest from 1975, which is this washed out borderline masterpiece about rebellious spirit. It's just so much fun to watch this one. I used to have this one higher, but I found when I revisited it that it's kind of harder for me to buy into McMurphy's, which is Jack Nicholson's uh, vision of a free spirited rebellion, mostly because it just boils down to debauchery hooking up with prostitutes and drinking a lot. But overall, the spirit of this one really gets you. And 
It's a great one. So that's what I have at 65 through 61, Brian. Some good choices here, Dan. And some that we'll be seeing again on my list. I need to revisit One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I really love the book. I'm not sure I've seen the movie all the way through. It's one for me where I've only seen the movie. It's kind of like the opposite of Holes, you know, where I read that book and loved that book. And then I thought the movie was just fine. But because I had read the book first, you know, the movie didn't really shake me up in the same way. Right. I find you need to watch the movie first, not just in Holes, but like if you're going to really love the movie, you got to see it first. You got to see it before the book. Because otherwise, if you go the other way, you're going to just be focusing on things from the book that are left out. Right. At number 65, I have The Halloween Tree from 1993. It's an adaptation of a Ray Bradbury story about the history of Halloween. Just really lovingly produced. It's got a great score by John Debney. Number 64 is Wreck-It Ralph from 2012. John C. Riley in a starring role as a video game villain who wants to turn his life around and make some friends. It's charming. The animation is beautiful. Lots of cool video game cameos. Number 63 is Galaxy Quest, which if you haven't seen this one recently, revisit it because it's masterfully written. Great cast. Just the names go on and on. You got Tim Allen, Alan Rickman, Sigourney Weaver... Tony Shalhoub from Monk. Rain Wilson is even in there, like five years before The Office. Uh, really funny. Great Star Trek parody. Number 62 is Super Size Me, a documentary where director Morgan Spurlock goes and eats at McDonald's every day for a month. And I find it really compelling. I don't know. I, I like the idea that a documentary can just be a guy doing a thing and you're watching him do it. I think this was prophetic. So much YouTube content now is just this. One dude going on a quest with a camera. Number 61 is Harry and the Hendersons from 1987. It's about a family meeting Bigfoot. Good practical effects. That's Kevin Peter Hall, a.k.a. The Predator, in the animatronic Harry suit. Nice picks. I I really need to see Galaxy Quest. Um, it's been on my to-watch list for a while, and this might just be the cue for me to pull the trigger. And then I love your insight about uh, Super Size Me basically predicting the video essay on YouTube. I think that's a great insight, because you got a good point, I think. And this is just like a higher-budget prototype of that at number 60 i have la la land from 2016 that's a goods pick uh we had a really good discussion on it so go find our episode on it if you want to hear more about la la land but i love pretty much everything about this movie and it's really stuck with me in the the year or so since we watched it just tremendous expressiveness in the colors and the choreography and the music and a really emotional ending that that stuck with me at 59, I have Pulp Fiction from 1994. Pulp Fiction, it's it's one of the, the great influential films, and it was really formative on me. It's a little bit uneven um, as a sort of episodic anthology film of sorts, 
Um, but there's just so much electricity in the dialogue and the acting. It's pretty irresistible to watch. Um, at 58, I have one that was a little lower on your list, and that is Silence of the Lambs from 1991. Really haunting and immaculately constructed. It's pretty much perfect as thriller filmmaking, like from start to finish, so engaging. I don't think I'll ever get tired of watching it. At 57, I have Adventureland from 2009. This is just a movie I have a huge soft spot for and just love. I just feel so much affection for it. And it was renewed when I rewatched it. I was worried I wouldn't like it anymore, but I just fell in love again. In fact, even better than I remembered, I think. It follows Jesse Eisenberg as a, a college grad in the 80s who's stuck working at a theme park for the summer, and he's got to hang out with Martin Starr and Kristen Stewart for the summer. And it just pulls every nostalgia lever. A um, little bit of a hangout comedy, a little bit of like a little drama comedy with some story to it. Great vibes, phenomenal soundtrack. At 56, I have The Muppet Christmas Carol from 1992. Yet another movie we've talked about on The Goods, but this has become a Christmas standard for me. Easily my favorite Christmas Carol, I think. And uh, just love the music of it. It's really got the perfect tone, blending the comedy, but with the serious telling of the Dickens story with a great turn by Michael Caine as Scrooge. Um, one of my, my go-to holiday movies. So yeah, those are my 60 to 56, Brian. Okay. Man, I left La La Land off my list. We're probably past the point that it would slot in at, but it does deserve a spot. I, I wasn't thinking, but I'm glad you mentioned it. And I don't have Pulp Fiction on my list, but we will see some Tarantino ere we are done here. Adventureland, I don't know too much about, other than there was an independent theme park in my neck of the woods growing up called Adventureland. It got bought by Six Flags, and now it's the Maryland Six Flags. At number 60, I have the animated Charlotte's Web from Hanna-Barbera in 1973. I think it's a great adaptation of the story. It looks like Hanna-Barbera animation of the era, but I quite like it. It's got songs by the Sherman Brothers, and it's touching. Number 59 is Darby O'Gill and the Little People from 1959. It has... Sean Connery in maybe his first leading role and he sings and this movie has some great forced perspective special effects it's got full-size humans interacting with pint-sized leprechauns and it looks really good just breathtaking special effects for the time lots of matte paintings and a great movie of the period, Disney Magic. Number 58, I remembered in the spur of the moment to pencil in My Cousin Vinny with Joe Pesci, Fred Gwynn. Just a really smart, funny script, and it's tight, as I said. Number 57 is The Goonies, a 1985 film about down-on-their-luck kids deciding to go on a treasure hunt, venturing through the caves of Oregon. This was uh, Astoria, Oregon, a place that I would visit every summer growing up, and cool to have a film associated with that locale. 
Number 56 is The Sandlot, a super nostalgic sports movie, basically a feature-length Wonder Years episode. And maybe it's schmaltzy, maybe it's episodic, but it really takes you back. All right. Well, speaking of connections on our list, Brian here. At number 55, I have My Cousin Vinny at 1992. And to be honest, I, if it were just me like throwing a list together, I don't know where I would put this. I'm probably a little higher on the list than this. But like I said, I did my matchup algorithm, and this is where it, it landed. And I think that is the reason that when I was looking at it and comparing it to other movies is I, I just adore the second half of this movie so, so much. And I quote it and think about it like maybe more than any other movie. But I also feel like whenever I'm watching it that I have to get through the first half to get to the second half. I think there's a few scenes here that are pretty superfluous and and rough. But I still absolutely love my cousin Vinny so much. At 54, I have another courtroom movie, and in fact, another one whose name has been uttered tonight. That is 12 Angry Men from 1957, which is basically flawless as a chamber drama, like you said, Brian, all in one room. And I think it's actually gotten better with age, as I need something idealistic to inspire me to really believe in the justice system as shared by us as a people. And yeah... It's a great one. At 53, I have Radio Days from 1987, which is probably my favorite Woody Allen film from my recent binge of the first half of his prodigious filmography. It's the highest ranked Woody Allen film, so I guess it is my favorite. It is a 1940s nostalgia piece, which is not a time that you see like casual nostalgia about for obvious reasons very often. But that's what it is, and it's a series of vignettes about the radio and how the radio ties various people together and what those stories are. And I just love that it's really colorful and vibrant, ditching like how you normally see early century America in film as like this kind of dreary, desaturated, dusty place. Um, just very colorful and exciting film with, again, good, good nostalgia and just lots of, lots of moments in it. Um, that's Radio Days, 1987. At 52, I have The Little Mermaid from 1989. I think the first half is unimpeachable, just masterpiece stuff, animation, music, and teenage longing. I do think the second half is great, but it loses a little bit of steam after Ariel stops talking. But definitely one of the great animated films of our lifetime, Brian. Oh, wait, my lifetime, not your lifetime, Brian. (laughs) And at 51, I have, I think, the most recent watch of mine, to make it. I guess Halloween might top it as more recent, so maybe second most recent. That is The Lighthouse from 2019, which immediately vaulted up pretty high here in my top 100, obviously. It's some of my favorite camera work that I've ever seen, this incredible black and white cinematography, and it captures this descent to madness in it. Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe are basically the only cast members, so it's kind of a chamber drama of sorts. And Dafoe's performance in particular, it's it's already on my list of my favorites ever. Um, just a, an absolutely mind-blowing performance with him with this guttural pirate voice, seaman voice. I love it so much. Awesome. I've definitely got to see The Lighthouse. I haven't yet. 
Teddy from Buzzed On Movies and his girlfriend went as the lighthouse keepers for Halloween, and that alone was enough to pique my interest. So, Oh, nice. Gotta check that one off. And The Little Mermaid is one that, for whatever reason, I watched all the time as a kid. It's definitely, like, top three of the Disney movies that I would just always have in the VCR. And... You know, then I kind of forgot about it for a while. And then a couple years back, they did that, like, live broadcast stage show. And my brother said that he had never seen it. And I was like, oh, man, it's great. And I think probably another revision, it would bump into the top 100. Because I do quite like that one. And actually, my brother met Jody Benson when she came to Disney World one day. So Oh, nice. He has first-hand aerial experience. <laughs> All right. So for my list, number 55 is National Treasure from 2004, starring Nicolas Cage. It's another one that is a better Indiana Jones 4 than Indiana Jones 4. It's got a bunch of historical conspiracies at work. You know, Illuminati mixed with the Freemasons and all kinds of things. Like all the treasures throughout history have somehow been condensed and George Washington and Benjamin Franklin knew about them and they're hidden under places that you went on your fifth grade field trip. But I, I like it. I am looking forward to National Treasure 3 if it ever happens. Number 54 is Shrek 2 from 2004. I think it only improves on the original. I mean, Shrek 1 is great as well. But what really brings this one home for me is the powerhouse musical number, Jennifer Saunders singing, I Need a Hero, Holding Out for a Hero. Number 53, I Have the Wizard of Oz. It stands the test of time unbelievably well, thanks to that Technicolor all the way back in 1939 some unforgettable images here and as dan mentioned it's scary i was scared of this one as a kid number 52 is fiddler on the roof an epic length musical about the persecution of the jewish people in 1905 in russia and it just is a slice of life of a place and a time that you probably don't know a whole lot about you know, it's the Russian Revolution that didn't work out. It's not the... I mean, Lenin was there, but he, you know, got kicked out of the country and bummed around for a while before he came back around and made it work. It just makes you empathize with these people who aren't having a very successful go of it. Number 51 is How the Grinch Stole Christmas, another one you've heard about already here tonight. Great songs, great storytelling. They slang their slew slunkas. They bang their gardinkas. Noise, 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 noise. Masterfully read by Boris Karloff. Great quote there. All right, Brian, we made it through 50. We're halfway there. And I got to say, you know, on the Discord, we were talking a little bit about the notion of tiers in ranking and like grouping and I do feel like we kind of hit a line right around 51 for me, where my top 50, I all, 
I just feel massive feelings towards, not to say that I don't for 100 through 51, but something special here is at a turning point. And I will say at number 50, I have a movie that I first saw when it came out and somehow has only gone up over time. And that is super bad from 2007. I think it might be the funniest film of my lifetime. And somehow I was tempted to put it even higher, but again, the algorithm spoke it's on the sophomoric side, of course, but I just think Jonah Hill and Michael Sarah are so good in their one ep- epic night together, and the script is just full of gems. At 49, I have American Graffiti. This is one that I have really convinced myself I liked even more than I did in the moment. It might be a full-blown masterpiece. We talked about it on The Goods. Just a perfect summation of the end of an American era, and also, in general, end of adolescence. Incredible filmmaking by director George Lucas before Star Wars. And the single best rock soundtrack. At 48, I have Goodfellas, which is one of the, as far as I'm concerned, few perfect crime epics that I've ever seen. It's so rich, full of incredible performances and filmmaking. It's almost daunting to watch just how much good stuff there is in it. Like, I need to prepare myself to watch it. It's not just something I throw on. A little bit on kind of the swaggering side with, like, romanticizing the gangsters and their gangster life which is kind of the point, and it does get deconstructed, but definitely decadent in that regard. At 47, I have the first eight that either of us gave to any movie on the goods. That's House from 1977. And this is one that has not diminished in my esteem since I saw it a couple years ago, October 2020, I think it was. Um, In fact, I recently wrote an article for um, this site with someone I met on Twitter where I picked this as my favorite horror movie. It was at least a unique one for me to write about. I don't know. We'll see if it actually fits that bill when we get to the end here. But I I just love its escalating insanity and visual creativity. At 46, we have a movie that you might expect to be a little higher based on how I've talked about it. But I don't think any of the movies that are higher on the list than this, this should have been placed above. So I feel pretty good about it. That's Forgetting Sarah Marshall. From 2008. Um, you know, we've talked about it a lot on the pod re- recently because it was an episode, and then we talked about it on our 100th episode spectacular uh, just a week ago. But I think this was, the, again, the hardest I've ever laughed in a movie theater, and I just love its setting and the Dracula puppet musical and all the performances and great characters. Uh, one of my favorite comedies. So that's what I have now that we've cracked the top 50, Brian. Great. I have seen all five of those movies that you mentioned. Hey. And American Graffiti and Goodfellas, I think, are just about worthy of making it into my top hundred. They're very close. They might make it in if I revamp. Superbad, not on my list. I think it's quite crass, which is maybe part of the point. But I know you love those all-in-one-night movies. I do. Two of them right there. And, uh, you know, I I enjoyed forgetting Sarah Marshall a lot when we covered that on the pod. For my number 50, I have Night of the Living Dead from George Romero, 1968. The movie that spawned the modern zombie genre. It's scary. It holds up. The 
independent black and white style really works for it. Then 49 through 47, I have the original Star Wars trilogy. Great movies. I hold them all at about the same point, same level of goodness. Uh, but the way I've got them ranked today, I have it in the order. Well, I just say it. 49, Return of the Jedi. 48, Empire Strikes Back. 47, Star Wars, a.k.a. A New Hope. And, you know, you can slice and dice that however you want. On my 2013 list, I actually had Return of the Jedi as my favorite because it has the most creatures. But I did recently rewatch these and just found it so dumb that they're exploding a Death Star again. Like, why would the Empire even try a Death Star again? They knew that it didn't work the first time. Come up with something else. But this one's better, Brian. I still love all the creatures, though. I, I love Ewoks and all the stuff at Jabba's Palace. Uh, but I think, as I said, I'm going to favor originals in this regard. So that's where I've got them. And number 46, I have Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl from 2003. Maybe a lot of this is nostalgia. I loved seeing it in the theaters when I was 13. It's better than... A movie based on a theme park ride has any right to be. And Johnny Depp was a known quantity before this, but he really exploded onto the scene when this came out. It's not the last time you'll hear Star Wars mentioned, I'll say. And Pirates of the Caribbean is one that I love and didn't make my, my top 100. Um but is one I have a lot of fondness for. I think I have it at a very good, so it wasn't on my short list of top 100 candidates, but it is a great one for sure. At number 45, I have In the Mood for Love from 2000. Again, a good selection. Just a visually decadent masterpiece filmed with tender longing. Great film by Wong Kar Wai. Um, it's really stuck with me since we watched it and talked about it with Will. I just love the the way that it showed emotions in in just these little gestures of these terrific actors, and it's just an impeccably made film. At number forty four, I have Toy Story two from nineteen ninety nine. It comes close to matching and in some ways improving on the original by expanding the scope and the emotional breadth and like the literary content, I guess, of the Toy Story premise. Just really deepens it all. A couple of dumb things in it that have bothered me when I've watched it a bajillion times, but still a masterpiece toward a good for me. Um, when Somebody Loved Me is probably the moment you can pinpoint that Pixar entered its peak phase, its imperial phase. 43, I have The Godfather from 1972, and which there's pretty much nothing to say about at this point. I mean, you know, it's near the top of any populist-driven list-making of the greatest films ever. And I think it deserves its reputation as one of the greatest films ever. It's the other great canonized crime epic on my list, along with Goodfellas. At 42, I have The Iron Giant from 1999, Brad Bird's first masterpiece of animation. And it really showed him handling much more serious themes with really bittersweet emotions to it than any other kids movie I'd seen at the time. And even still today, I think. Just a terrific one. 41, I'm just going to say it. 
Jurassic Park, 1993. I'm guessing you, Brian, and probably most people expected this one to be a bit higher on my list as it has been in past lists. I've cooled off just a little bit on this one since the last time I watched it. There's a little more filler in it than I remembered and a couple of dumb things that bothered me, but I think it does that singular most important thing of making dinosaurs feel massive and real and so scary. And it's just so well-crafted by Steven Spielberg. It transcends its flaws. It's right on the line of a seven and eight for me. And just one that's, you know, always been a favorite of mine and still is. So that's what I have at 45 through 41, Brian. We're getting into the great stuff. I know. And man, somehow I forgot to put the Godfather on here also. So just think listeners that La La Land and Godfather are on there somewhere. If I were to update tomorrow, they would have spots. Something would get cut. They'd be on here. That's one that, you know, all the polls have it like right at the top. And unlike Citizen Kane, I think it deserves the spot. I don't love Citizen Kane. I think it's, it repeats a lot of stuff because it does like the Rashomon thing, but Godfather is good. At number 45, I have Boogie Nights from Paul Thomas Anderson. This is one I discovered a few years back and just immediately it pole vaulted into a slot on my list because I didn't know what to expect other than it's set against the backdrop of the porno chic era of film history. But there's a huge cast and pretty much everybody has an arc that goes somewhere that you don't expect, or maybe you do, but you still are enthralled watching it unfold. Number 44 is Toy Story 1 from 1995. The first feature length computer animated film and known for more than just its novelty. It put Pixar on the map. It's a story well told. Another great cast. It's funny. It makes you think. It warms your heart. It's one for the ages. Number 43 is Bridge on the River Kwai from 1957. A Best Picture winner. And it's got Alec Guinness as the star as a British military officer who leads his team of POWs at a Japanese prison camp in collaborating on a construction project. And he kind of spins it as like building morale, but it goes dark places. And by the end, he's saying, what have I done? In just a really great, oh shit moment. Number 42, I have Monty Python and the Holy Grail. This is one that, you know, dorky kids watch in sixth grade as a rite of passage, and you never forget the dialogue. Number 41, A Bucket of Blood. It's one I only watched for the first time around about 2019. It's a public domain movie, and man... People talk your ear off about Taxi Driver. I think they should be talking about A Bucket of Blood because it came like 15 years earlier and it does the whole angry, lonely loser thing every bit as well. 
All right. Glad to see that we're having some some overlaps here. I know that we have a lot of movies we both love. Um, so for you'll recall for 41, I had a movie that has been in my top 10 or 15 in the past and now has sunk a little bit lower. Number 40 is also that for me, which is The Empire Strikes Back from 1980. Again, a perennial near the top of the list for mine for most of my life up until fairly recently, where I still obviously think it's a masterpiece and one of my favorite movies ever. It's sunk just a little. I think its story beats are slightly less elemental than the original, just not quite as impactful. But it's obviously one of the great adventures, you know, a reason that every geeky kid, like you said, watches it in sixth grade and then latches onto it. It's like The Empire Strikes Back and Monty Python and the Holy Grail and then whatever Weird Al album just came out or like the trifecta. At 39, I have Fargo from 1996, my next Coen Brothers selection. This is just this mordantly funny, dark crime story about a conspiracy gone haywire in snowy Minnesota. Hilarious performances, perfect script, mind-bogglingly great cinematography out in the snow. It's one that kind of feels like it's long, but is actually only barely 90 minutes. It's just so much of a gut punch. It leaves a long shadow. Masterpiece. 38, Brian. Near far, wherever you are. That's Titanic from 1997. To me, this is the peak of what capital C cinema can be as an experience. Love the melodrama and the spectacle, the star power. It filled my heart. It broke my heart. I'm going to wait a few years to watch it again and see if I still feel this high on it. But man, I I really loved watching this one and talking about it, Brian. At 37, I have The Incredibles, which is one of Brad Bird's two Pixar masterpieces. Hold that thought. Um, Really love the action. Incredible use of incredible superpowers. Uh, And just a, a great yarn that does all of its storytelling so visually and remains one of the great superhero movies. And then at 36, I have Do the Right Thing from 1989 by Spike Lee. You said it all just right. It really captures the power of heat. I like that you said it was kind of almost expressionistic in the way that it captured this one city block and all all these crazy characters and how that just kind of escalated into violence. It started as a hangout comedy with some tones of racial tension to a race war with characters we had come to love. And so, yeah, that's what I have there for that set of five, Brian. Oh man. Really great pack of five. My favorite of your grouping so far. And Fargo, man, you really got me like reevaluating my list because Fargo is at least up there for me, maybe past American Graffiti. It's like biting at the heels of the hundred. So probably worthy of a spot. Definitely gets an honorable mention on my list because, yeah, it's great. Steve Buscemi really shines. Yeah. Uh, William H. Macy, too. Yeah. Those are my two favorite performances from that. And I'm glad you got Titanic on your list. And 
Incredibles is one that grows for me every time I watch it too. So, man, really making me think about my choices. (laughs) But for the moment, I have number 40 and number 39 as a tie. These are the movies Follow Me Boys from 1966 and Mr. Holland's Opus from 1995. And I've got them right at the same slot because they're very similar. They're both about the life of a teacher. Well, Mr. Holland's Opus is a music teacher and Follow Me Boys is a scoutmaster. But these are roles they kind of fall into. They have other dreams, but they start teaching because, hey, it's convenient, you know, and it'll pay the bills for a little while while I'm pursuing what I really am passionate about. But then the years slip away, and we check in with them periodically as time keeps slipping, slipping into the future, and suddenly 30 years has gone by, and what have they done? What do they have to show for their time? And the answer is that they've touched hundreds of young lives, and that's their legacy, is that now the whole community owes a little bit every single one of them to these influential teachers that they've had in their life. And of course you're crying by the end. Tearjerkers extraordinaire. Follow me boys and Mr. Holland's opus. At number 38, I have the 5,000 fingers of Dr. T one that has leaped about 35 spaces from my old list. My appreciation for it has just grown i love the crazy colors it's surprisingly early this movie is from 1953 and is just soaked through and through with dr seuss's creative vision at number 37 i have the ten commandments an epic from cecil b demille in 1956 and this is one of a couple on my list that just gets better every time i watch it I have more of an appreciation for all the sub-threads that run through it. It's a huge cast. And at the center are the great performances from Charlton Heston as Moses and Yul Brenner as Ramses. Two brothers who were already rivals but are now turned outright enemies because of their faiths. Really compelling stuff. And at number 36, I have one that for whatever reason, appeals to me, but critics don't seem to like it. It's Dr. Doolittle from 1967. It's got Rex Harrison in the lead. Music again by Bracusi and Newley. I like the idea of this guy who's a misanthrope. He loves animals way more than he loves people. And he's kind of fighting an unpopular battle for things like vegetarianism and seeing animals' souls, and maybe not a case that I'm championing as I chow down on chicken wings or what have you, but he really makes a compelling figure. Nice picks there, Brian. I'm not sure. I guess I've seen the 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, but that was one where I did not have very good coverage of your fives. Um, And in fact... I had 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T uh, as an honorable mention, ranked around 115th on my master algorithm. 
At 35, I have Ratatouille from 2007, which is, of course, the other of Brad Bird's Pixar masterpieces. Kind of a bizarre story and premise, if you think about it. I think he kind of inherited the idea and made it into his own thing. But he really did make it his own thing. It, like, manages to capture these huge themes of, like, why we make art and who can make art and who decides what art is great. And also, like, who's worthy of honoring and, and giving your praise and affection to and, and all, all these kind of complicated themes tied up in this goofy story about a rat that controls a dude by pulling his hair around. It's just so funny and goofy. And there's some good chases and stuff. Love it. It's a masterpiece. Love Anton Ego's monologue. I ended our first episode of The Goods by reading Anton Ego's monologue, and I still think it, it holds up. Also, shout out to Everything Everywhere All at Once, which didn't make my top 100, but is something I gave an exceptionally good and has probably the best or, or at least the most memorable Ratatouille parody that I've seen in it. So that's 35. At 34, I have Psycho from 1960, which is just the perfect slasher. Uh, it, it kind of breaks into two halves. I think the first half is way better than the second half. Although I think the second half is a masterpiece too. So maybe not way better. Just this really suspenseful and twisty story that is beautifully shot by Hitchcock in black and white. Thrilling, great use of score to evoke emotions, but also there's something minimal about it too. Uh, just a tremendous movie. 33, I have A Charlie Brown Christmas from 1965 which is my favorite holiday special of any kind. I think Bill Melendez does great animation, especially taking kind of this low budget sketch style of animation and making tremendous character animation out of it. Uh, I mean, obviously the jazz music unforgettable and I just love its great melancholy tone that builds to a really moving and authentic portrayal of the spirit of rebirth that is at the heart of Christian Christmas which, you know, normally I don't like if things get too didactic and religious, but I think it really fits the tone just right. And man, I love this. It's a tour to good for me. Charlie Brown Christmas. At 32, I have Wally. That's right. Two Pixars in this batch of five. This is a masterpiece that I think gets slightly less interesting as the runtime goes along. But overall, it really holds together. We talked a lot about it in our Pixar top five. Um, it's a mind boggling piece of almost radically minimal screenplay that kind of contrasts the the soul emerging from the creations of this increasingly desolate inhuman world that's around us and how we humans kind of need to use that as inspiration to kind of reconnect together. And then it turns into a 2001 pastiche, which is still fun, but it's not quite as moving as, as the way Wally is dancing around to Hello, Dolly. And then at 31, I have Before Sunset, which I had Before Sunrise a little bit earlier. Before Midnight didn't quite make it, but is also an exceptionally good for me. Um, rarely do I think a sequel has done more to deepen a movie than Before Sunset does to Before Sunrise. Um, it kind of deepens and darkens the themes and gives us whatever happened to those kids in a very satisfying and bittersweet way. And... Uh, it's just lovely watching these people talk and wondering 
any chance that their connection will remain strong even as time wears it down. Really a lovely one. So that that's my next batch, Brian. Nice. Again, we're going to see a little bit of overlap as we move forward. Psycho, a strong pick. Not on my list, but I like that one. I know your love for Charlie Brown Christmas. Definitely something you got to pull out each year. And for my number 35, I have The Mask of Zorro from 1998. Great action, sweeping romance... And really put Antonio Banderas' star on the rise. Number 34, I have Chitty Chitty Bang Bang from 1968. Another of those 60s family musicals of which I happen to be fond. More Sherman Brothers songs, Dick Van Dyke in the lead role. And just some pretty creative visuals ideas you got the flying and floating car the scary child catcher and even things like the state fair and the toot sweet instrument candies it's just cool visuals and if you get the blu-ray there's really eye-popping colors 33 i have elf something which was not on my 2013 list but is one that every time i watch it I appreciate it more. It makes me laugh all throughout Will Ferrell's zany antics with James Caan as the deadpan straight man just not having any of it is hilarious. Number 32 is also Dan's number 32 pick, Wally. For both of us, the 32nd favorite film. Wow. And I just quite enjoy it i'm gonna try to be more interesting than that in the things i say going forward because obviously these are all going to be movies that i like but yeah that first half of the movie where it's almost a silent film wally doesn't even have a mouth it's just all expressions of his binocular eyes and it works you're swept away number 31 Castaway from Robert Zemeckis in 2000. It's Tom Hanks and Tom Hanks alone out surviving on an island and you're watching him piece together the necessities of survival. Not too many people can carry a last man on earth type story, but Tom Hanks does just fine. Great picks, Brian. Obviously, we feel similarly about Wally. We both think it's approximately the 32nd best movie we've ever seen. In fact, precisely. But on to my 30 to 26, which is the last five we'll be talking about for this podcast episode. At number 30, I have a member of our 16 club, and that is Groundhog Day from 1993, which, as you all know, invented the time loop premise and storytelling format but really just perfected it too. I love it for that time loop storytelling, but even more so I love it for the way that it uses that structure to really like dig at what makes us human and the way that we experience the world. It's a really thoughtful masterpiece. Um, I still think the rom-com elements are a little underwhelming, but I like everything else about it. 
At 29, I have Gates of Heaven, which is my goofy documentary that I like weird documentaries about weird things like you're super size me, Brian. This one just really blows me away, though, because it's got the funny element and but it's really thoughtful, too. It's about a, a pet cemetery and, you know, you're dealing with death, your companionship the people who run it are like these poetic figures of like, have they achieved the dream or are they losers who haven't achieved the dream? And you know that Errol Morris, the documentarian really thinks that they're both, that they're fascinating and admirable, but also kind of pathetic. And it's just like Mark Twain esque dialogue. Like you would find it in a great piece of literature, how funny and riveting and ironic some of the monologues we get in here are definitely got to see this one if you haven't brian at 28 i have the truman show from 1998 which is a great high concept that's perfectly executed and manages to be richly literary in addition to just being a good yarn about a dude who lives in a tv show i mean it's obviously great satire and a great story too At 27, I have Amadeus from 1983. Now, loyal listeners will know that I strongly dislike biopics in general, don't like musical biopics very much. This is the exception. Just an amazing piece of drama, tremendous production values, but also has this, because of the F. Murray Abraham performance and framing story, has this, like sense of spiritual destiny that's only enhanced by the beautiful classical music and just such high drama uh, and an epic and really engages me. Um, That's what I have at number 27. And then at 26, I have Brief Encounter, which is a film from 1945 by David Lean. It was the reason I picked Summertime when we talked about that, because I wanted another kind of smaller David Lean piece who's generally known for his big epics like Lawrence of Arabia, which I've never seen. But Brief Encounter is this truly lovely romance story. It's got this woozy Rachmaninoff score that just emphasizes it. It is the all-time train movie as far as I'm concerned. And it's, it's a tearjerker. It's these people who fall in love at the wrong time, bound by their social obligations to kind of resist each other. And it, it's just perfection. And this mature, complex love story in in Britain in the 40s. So, Brian, that's how I wrapped up my first 75 on my top 100. Wow. I might have to check out Brief Encounter. I definitely got to check out Gates of Heaven. You've talked about that several times, and it is intriguing to me. And The Truman Show, that's one I haven't thought about in a while. That is a pretty unique movie. I love Amadeus. You'll hear about Amadeus again. (laughs) At number 30, I have a musical biopic. It's Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. We've brought it into discussion several times. It got its own dedicated episode not too long ago. John C. Riley is a musical talent. Genuinely a good singer. And lots of creative faculties went into this movie more than i think they needed to to just do a biopic parody like great songwriting here so many funny comedians turn up and i'm gonna sing its praises whenever i get the opportunity
At number 29, I have Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory from 1971. Great piece of family film. More music by Ricusi and Newley. Gene Wilder is a gem as the title role. Alternately charming and outright scary. Just a very quirky, unforgettable movie. Number 28, Jurassic Park from 1993. What always strikes me is two things. The staying power of the visual effect. They knew when to use animatronics and when to use CGI and blended them really well. The other thing is, how is this movie so good and none of the sequels even come close? It, it boggles my mind. It seems like it wouldn't be that hard, but they've never made another one as good, and they keep trying. Then, 27 and 26, I have the Back to the Future sequels. Specifically, I've got Part 2 at 27 and Part 3 at 26. To some people, that's blasphemy. I like the third because it takes you to a distinctive time period. It takes you to the Wild West, whereas part two, so much of it is just reliving the first movie. And they do it in cool and interesting ways. They really wrestle with the nature of paradoxes and how they work in this world, branching universes and all of that. So it's definitely cerebral. But yeah, I like the Cowboys in part three. So that's how I wrap out the first three quarters of our discussion. Lots of good stuff in here, Brian. Obviously. By definition, lots of good stuff in here. I'm really excited to see where we go for the top 25. I have a couple of ones you may or may not be expecting. And some ones you're expecting. And I assume the same is true for you too, Brian. Yes, same to you. Things that... I know you're waiting for. Yeah. And I think some overlap and I think some not overlap too. So this was really fun. I had a lot of fun putting this together and a lot of fun sharing it. I don't know how it's good, if it's going to be fun to listen to, but you know, if you did listen to it and you made it this far, you didn't just click on the letterbox list to see it. Thank you listeners. I appreciate that. Share us your top X movies list, top 100, whatever. A lot of people do top two fifties if they're really cinephiles. Maybe someday I'll be able to do that. I don't know. Top 100 is good for me right now, and I'm feeling good about this list, Brian. I'm feeling good about your list, too. You got some doozies on there. Yeah, but as I said, room for improvement. We're going to see more movies, we're going to think new things, and we're going to evaluate. But thank you for listening to what we had to say, listeners. Hope you join us again for the big reveal of the top 25. <laughs>